You are listening to the In Focus Church podcast. We believe God is going to meet you right where you are today as you listen and dig into His Word. Luke 5.16 says, But Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. Just think about that for a moment and ask yourself, how does that correlate with my own life? Have you ever asked someone how they're doing and their reply to you is, well, man, it's just nonstop. Just nonstop. Or maybe that's how people describe you as being nonstop. In the world that we live in, the culture that we live in, it's frantically paced and we kind of join right in with this pace without much thought Or the fact that maybe it's not normative to live life in such a frenzied manner. Consequently, we're overscheduled, we're tense, we're frantic, we're hurried, we're fatigued, we have no margin in our lives whatsoever. For somebody to ask us to do something extra would be the epitome of just pushing us over the edge. The mantra of our day really has become can't stop, won't stop. That's really how we live our life and we're addicted to doing things and slowing down actually makes us feel guilty. Like as a Christian, I can say that it's slowing down makes me feel like, well, maybe I should be doing something. I'm not doing enough for the kingdom of God. And in my own mind, I'm doing these mental calisthenics of why am I not doing something right now? I should be ministering and doing something for the kingdom of God. I mean, at very least, I feel like maybe I should be a better productive person in society because I'm just not doing something. Can I suggest that if you feel this way or if any of the adjectives that I just used described you like fatigued, hurried, marginless, then you could be experiencing some spatial disorientation. And I'm going to define that in just a minute, but spiritually speaking, you've got some disorientation spatially. And, and when difficulties in your life come, and they will, as we all understand and know this, the scripture promises that. We've actually lived it. It's a lived experience. When those difficulties come and those storms in life come, if we are spatially disoriented, it's going to cause us to crash. It'll destroy us. And that's really the enemy's goal for your life, to destroy you. The Bible's pretty clear about that. You may ask what spatial disorientation is and what it has to do with being emotionally healthy and emotionally healthy spirituality, which is what we're talking about in this series, Break My Soul. What does it have to do? We're in week six of talking about this, and I'm telling you, God is doing some tremendous works, some deep works in the lives of those of us who are giving ourselves over to allow God to do that. I was just talking to somebody this past week, and it's like one of the things I said is like, you might need to tell someone else that God is doing a great work in your life, and they need to allow God to do the great work he is doing in in your life. Because even sometimes we don't understand what God's doing in someone else's life, and we're like Job's friends, and we kind of move in there, and we stop what God's trying to do because we don't understand. But God is doing a great work in our lives. And I could find myself thinking through this whole series going well god this is difficult this is hard maybe we should just kind of pull back a little bit let's hit the brakes and and as we've said over the last few weeks no when you've come to the wall and when you've come to the end that's just the beginning of what god's about to do so if you have your bible i'm actually going to refer back to a 
scripture that we've used already throughout this series, and, and it was actually used in the rally this morning, unbeknownst to the rally person and myself, but Hebrews 12, we talked about it a few weeks ago, and I want to go back there and focus on the end of the scripture. So if you have your Bible, Hebrews 12, chapter, chapter 12, verse 1 and 2, and let's read that. At this point, maybe you've kind of got it memorized because we've actually been in this a good bit. Therefore, since we also have such a large cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us lay aside every hindrance and the sin that so easily ensnares us. Let us run with endurance the race that lies before us. Verse 2, keeping our eyes on Jesus, the source and perfecter of our faith. God, as we come back to your word again and again, and whatever it is that you're trying to show us, even in this particular passage of Scripture, God, have your way. Let your word speak to our hearts and our minds. Change us from the inside out. Keeping our eyes on Jesus, fixing our eyes on Jesus, as some translations say, and that's probably the, the portion of the Scripture that we know the most. We've heard it. We've said it. I've preached it. We've tried to apply it. But how often in all of this do we actually do that fix our eyes on Jesus how often do we give our undivided attention to God how long do we give our undivided attention to Jesus and this is where spatial disorientation comes in because all of us have something in this life that we fix our eyes on and it changes but we all fix our eyes on things whether we readily admit it or not there's something that we're focused on it could be yourself it could be your spouse it could be your love interest it could be your kids it could be your money it could be your job and depending on what you are fixing your eyes on when life becomes disorienting when storms begin to move in it will affect how you live depending on what you're looking at depending on what you're fixing your eyes on and none of these things that I just mentioned are actually bad things but they're not our solid focal point of our lives as a dancer, I was talking to uh, Lena the other day. I said, what's that thing? Because I, I took dance when I was in high school because I went to a fine arts school. And it's like, what's that thing where you call where you have to keep your eyes? And it's like called spotting. So it's like if I'm going to look at a spot and then I'm going to do a, a, and I'm not about to, but let's say if I'm about to do a spin, then I keep my eyes spotted on this thing. So when I come back around, you know, I don't get spatially disoriented. It doesn't necessarily work, but that's what you're saying. The older you get, the, the, it doesn't work. Like if somebody says, hey, just kind of keep your eyes fixed on that roller coaster. It's not going to help me, I'm telling you. I can't keep my eyes fixed. But spatial disorientation, let me give you a definition. It's the inability to determine one's position, location, and motion relative to their environment. It's a phenomenon most often associated with pilots. It was probably made most famous, and you've heard this story before, back when JFK Jr., crashed the plane that he was flying and tragically was killed back in 1999. It's the inability to correctly interpret the aircraft's attitude, altitude, and airspeed in relation to the ground or a fixed point of reference. The most commonly occurs after a reference point, for example, the horizon, has been lost. Spatial disorientation by aviators occurs when a pilot's sensory interpretation of their position or motion conflicts with reality. 
The horizon is the fixed, unchanging point that they can orient their flight pattern to. But when conditions deteriorate and you can no longer see the horizon, what you feel and think begin to conflict with reality until you enter in what is called a graveyard spiral and you crash. If there was ever an effective metaphor for our spiritual lives, I don't know if there's a better one. That we sometimes are, are in a situation that is disorienting and life brings its storms into our lives and that fixed pattern of our lives we can't see anymore. That's why we walk by faith and not by sight. But what we see all of a sudden isn't something that I want to believe or line my life up to. And so I'm disoriented in such a way because my eyes aren't fixed on Jesus. And it causes my life to enter into a spiral, if you will, to destruction. There was ever something that God wanted to show us today. I'm praying that we would reorient our lives to a rhythm that honors God and recognizes, as we said last week, that we have limitations as human beings. Jesus in this metaphor, if you will, is our horizon. He is the one that we fix our eyes on. He's that unchanging fixed point that Hebrews tells us that you keep your eyes focused on because if we don't, we will lose sight of the truth. And what we feel and what we think will begin to conflict with reality. And we'll enter that graveyard spiral, if you will, that the enemy wants to take us on and destroy and crash and shipwreck, as Paul says, our life. This is what the enemy wants. To keep us so busy that we don't have time to reorient our vision to that fixed point of Jesus Christ, to where what you see begins to redefine and interpret your situation, and it's in conflict with the truth. The way a pilot avoids this is by trusting his instruments, despite what he sees. Do you see the comparison? The way that the believer avoids this graveyard spiral that we can end up in is by trusting the instruments that God has given us and not just what we see. We fix our eyes on Jesus and by faith we trust the things that he's given us. If you want to call them instruments in this metaphor, you can. He's given us this life to orient our hearts, the things that he's given us to orient our minds to the truth. He does that through his word, the Bible. He does that through prayer. He does that through times of worship, corporately and individually, as we've experienced this morning, and hopefully you experience beyond just Sunday morning. He does that through the church community and the body of believers called the church. He does that through discipleship until we begin to see clearly what is good and true. Those are the instruments that are saying, no, this is true, and this is true, not what you see right now. So how do we create a rhythm in life that is both God-honoring and life-altering? That's what I want to talk about today, a rhythm that is not frantic, that's not frenzied, that's not faulty, but a rhythm that is filled with the grace and the peace of God that transcends our understanding. I want to talk about two ancient disciplines, if you will, that go back thousands of years that I think can help us avoid spiritual spatial disorientation. I'm actually in a class right now talking about historical theology and, and the ancient church fathers and the theology that came out of, of what they taught and the things that they taught. And a lot of times, here's the reality, we just get focused on all the new books. What's the newest book that's going to come out? And I'm telling you, my friends, as I can just attest to by what I've done in my own life, a lot of times the better thing is to go back to some really old books. 
obviously the oldest being the Bible, the Word of God, but to hear from some of the ancient fathers of the faith that actually Hebrews is kind of referring to in Hebrews 11, the ones that are cheering us on, the great cloud of witnesses. But here's what happens. When we go back to these things and we read about these ancient disciplines that can help us spiritually have a spatial reorientation, it's something that now we're, we're doing. And, and I, I titled this morning's message A Sacred Revolution because that's what it's going to take. Because the world's going to say completely opposite of what I'm telling you today. And to go into these ancient disciplines or these ancient treasures, if you will, that really Jesus implemented, they'll keep us from caving into this cultural imbalance of nonstop activity. Isn't that one of the most hated questions as a parent that you have when your kids say, well, what are we doing? We're not going to Disney World right now, okay? Is it, you ever heard that? Well, life's just not a, whole, a bunch of Disney World, all right? I mean, things that I never wanted to hear that now are coming out of my mouth. I didn't want to hear them when I was a kid, and now I'm saying as a father, right? What, you just want nonstop? You just want, what, what you think I'm a leisure planner? What? <laughs> nonstop activity is not what God has called us to. And what I want to talk to you about is the daily office and Sabbath. Stopping and surrendering to God, as we heard in the testimony a moment ago, to trust God. Surrender is at the heart of these two ancient practices, if you will. The daily office and the Sabbath. Theologian Robert Barron argued, at the heart of original sin is the refusal to accept God's rhythm for us. The essence of being made in God's image is our ability, like God himself did, is to stop. That's what he did. He, he worked and then he stopped. Once a week, there's a Sabbath or maybe twice a day. That's what the daily office is. And we can reorient ourselves to the rhythm of work and rest that God instituted himself. Psalm 92, 1 and 2 says, It is good to give thanks to the Lord, to sing praises to your name most high, to declare your faithful love in the morning and your faithfulness at night. I mean, how often do we even do that simple pattern? And I, listen, I'm not preaching to you from a place of having accomplished it well. I even was kind of a, a little ticked about this message this week with God. I'm like, this is the week that I am doing this the worst. Like Carla's not here, Josiah's gone, all my family except me and, and Anna, Issy, and Zano. I'm at home and I'm like the taxi service, taking people to school and doing everything. And, and it's like, this is the worst week for me to preach this message. Because I stink at this right now. Oh, well. So here we are, even evening and night. And typically, here's what we do. We divide up our lives into secular lives and sacred lives. And this would be a part of your sacred life right now. And if we're doing well, here's what we'll declare. Well, I got to church on Sunday, and then it's back to the grind on Monday. That's the reality of, of, our, of our kind of sacred life. We're doing well if we got here today. And, and I'm glad you're here and I'm, or watching online or whatever. I'm glad, but that cannot be the pinnacle of our sacred life. What if every morning and afternoon and evening we took a few minutes to cry out to God? That's what Psalm 55, 17 says, and I, I memorized that years ago in a song. Like evening and morning and at noon, I will... The, the song says pray. Some translations, like this one says, I will complain and murmur. And he will hear my voice. Even if I complain and murmur, 
This is a lament. So he's like, well, man, I don't have anything really good to pray right now. That's okay. Go complain then to God because that's the best place to do it. Three times a day, at least maybe. That's the evening and morning and at noon. And as you read from the commentary of Matthew Henry, and I was reading this commentary and it made me laugh. This is what he said. Those that think three meals a day, little enough for the body, ought much more to think three solemn prayers a day, little enough for the soul. And count it a pleasure, not a task. As it is fit that in the morning we should begin the day with God, and in the evening close it with him. So it is fit that in the midst of the day we should retire a while to converse with him. It was Daniel's practice to pray three times a day, and noon was one of Peter's hours of prayer. Acts 10, 9, let us not be weary of praying often, for God is not weary of hearing often. He shall hear my voice and not blame me for coming too often, but the oftener, the better, the more welcome. So let's focus on this daily office, talk about it. What if we continually practice the presence of God, eliminating the distinction between the sacred and the secular, and just stop to be with God? The purpose of the daily office, if you will, is not so much a turning to God to get something, but a turning to God to be with someone. I'm not trying to get something from God in this moment. I'm just trying to be with God at this moment. So I'm going to take the remainder of our time to be just super practical today. We've been using Peter Scazzaro's Emotionally Healthy Spirituality in our connect groups and through this sermon series. And I'm going to go over some of these elements that he draws out and, and mentions these kind of four elements of the daily office that I want to encourage you with today. And I want to liberate you straight away because it does not matter whether it's five minutes or 15 minutes because that's usually what we do. Well, how long and what do I got to do? And can I write it all out on, on a little index card and put it up in my closet or whatever? It's not the matter of the length of time. It's just taking the time to be with God consistently and it can be alone or it can be with somebody else see that's the other thing is like well do I have to be alone no it can be with somebody else why because this journey that we're on is a corporate journey of formation not a solo flight so let's 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 steal away number one is you got to stop yourself as I said earlier our cultural mantra has become can't stop won't stop but here's what God will bring you to must stop will stop even if you don't eventually your body will I've been there. Every time we stop in our day, here's what we're doing. We surrender control of our lives back over to God and trust him to run our lives and the world without us. If the God of the universe can stop from his work, not because he was tired, mind you, but to enjoy it, then how much more can we stop in the middle of our day to enjoy what God is doing in us and in the world around us? If you want to have a place, then have a place. You can call it the chair or the stool of sacred resistance. That's kind of what I have. It's like, here's, here's my sacred resistance, right? I've got this little stool. I didn't bring it today just because I think I've used it before, and, and y'all don't want to see my stool that's in my closet anyway. And if you do, I can take a picture of it and send it to you. But here's the reality. I have this little stool. It's much lower, because, and I don't know what I'm going to do when I get older. I don't think I'm going to be able to get down there onto that stool, because I'm serious. It's about this tall. I built it when I was like eight. But so here's your tool of sacred resistance, if you will. Look, I'm driving some of y'all crazy just by doing this right now. You got, man, we got, come on. 
we got a message to get done. I got somewhere to go. There's a football game on at one. I still got to eat. And here's where we come to this place, this sacred resistance and revolution, if you will. I give up, God. You're in control of the world, not me. This is the spiritual revolution against the tyranny of a rhythmless life or a sped-up podcast. Look, I can't even listen to a podcast slow. <laughs> Some of y'all are like, what? What are you talking about? Like, one and a half at bare minimum. I don't have time. For 30 minutes of real 30 minute time. I mean, it's crazy. Number two, not just stopping yourself, but centering yourself. And maybe you would think of a centering prayer. If you've never heard that before, it's just, it's really kind of a modern way of, of, of whether it's meditation or contemplative prayer. It's a time that we see Jesus going to often. How often do you take time to get in God's presence and just rest there? There's no agenda in, in centering myself with God. Centering prayer implements Jesus' instruction to go into your inner room, close the door, and pray to the Father in secret. Matthew 6, 6. It emerges from this natural desire to be with God and set our attention on him. It's a purposeful time to make space for God and invite God into that space. It's not easy, and it's why... We have to practice centering prayers like anything else. We have to work this out. And, and as I was reading somebody talking about doing it, it's like you could fall asleep to begin with. I'm like, been there, just being silent in solitude. Next thing you know, you're like, oh my gosh, I think I just fell asleep. I have also done that while actually praying out loud in a group of people. <laughs> Fallen dead asleep. And not, I was like, I have no idea what I just prayed. And thinking to myself, I wonder if they thought that while I was praying that, like, oh God, please. That was bad. It's happened at least twice in my life. Here's what I think the psalmist describes about centering yourself in Psalm 37, 7. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Okay, God, I'm going to wait, but hurry up. That's how we are. And the only goal of, of centering yourself or a centering prayer is to be with God. You don't come with an objective. You've got nothing to do during a centering prayer except to be present with God. You say, well, what is the difference between all these meditation, a meditative prayer or a contemplative prayer? And uh, one person describes it this way. Meditation is thinking about God. Centering prayer is consenting to God. And contemplative prayer is loving God. Focus your heart and mind on him. Just be with him in silence and solitude, which leads me to the third point of this whole, this kind of practice of the daily office. It's a time of silence and solitude. This may be one of the most difficult things for us to do, and depending on our seasons of life, we've got all kinds of excuses because we live in a noisy world. We've got families. We've got jobs. We've got all this stuff where we're constantly distracted or watching or listening to something, and then even when we do get a moment, there's somebody saying, hey, man, have you seen this? I mean, I can't tell you how many times that happens. You know, my kids, especially in, in the last however many years, and now I've got another wave of kids. It's like, have you seen this on TikTok? Have you seen this dance? Have you, have you seen this stupid thing that somebody's done? No, and I don't want to because I know I'll get sucked in like you, and then I'm going to be sitting there looking at it for another 15, 30 hours. <laughs> Most of us fear being alone, and silence is unnerving to us. Studies say an average group can only bear 15 seconds of silence. Let's try it. No, I'm not even going to do it because you're already, some of you already have anxiety. Just, oh my gosh, that was two seconds. I can't take it. 
Silence is the radical reversal of our cultural norm. That's what it's a sacred revolution against what culture is demanding. Silence is the practice of quieting every inner and outer voice to concentrate on God and let go. A prayer in silence is saying, God, free me from caring about even myself right now and everything else around me so I could just focus on you. It's releasing self-rule and saying, God, no, you're the ruler of the world. This is where solitude begins as well. Silence takes us to solitude. It's the practice of being absent from people and things to completely focus on God. But more than just being alone with God, it's being who we are with God and acknowledging who we are to ourselves and to God. I think that's why most of us don't like solitude. Because it's the place where I have to really admit who I really am. The, the quintessential example of that is Jacob when he's wrestling with God. He's, he's alone with God. He's in solitude with God. And he's coming to grips with who he really is. And God asks him this question. And he basically says, what is your name? And it's at that moment that God and Jacob in this solitude all of a sudden says, what kind of person are you really? Because that's what God's asking. What kind of person are you really, Jacob? And what does Jacob reply? In the solitude, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a manipulator. I'm a supplanter. I'm I'm a liar. And it's at that moment that Jacob had to come to a place in the solitude where he acknowledged before God and himself what kind of person he really was so that he could be really healed. Not so that he could be condemned, not so that he could be ashamed, but so that God could, okay, now that you've admitted who you really are, I'm going to make you who you're supposed to be. I'm going to name you Israel. But that was a long time ago, Pastor. I mean, you know, that was, that was they were sitting on rocks and stuff, you know. What, who has time for that now? We just, it's a different world. This is the 21st century. And what I would say to that is if Jesus did this, then you better remember our first scripture. But Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. Jesus often, and the Bible says withdrew, and that word is habitual. It's a a tense that indicates habitually did this. He collected himself and he communed with God. Spending time communing with God is not only the key to living victoriously and living righteously, but also ministering effectively. And you can see this in the life of Jesus. If you're going to do anything for God, then you first have to be with God. In fact, numerous conflicts in Luke followed, and the gospel writer is making it clear that before Jesus meets with conflict in his life, he communes with God. What if the conflict that you face this week, maybe tomorrow or Tuesday or Wednesday or whatever day it is, what if the conflict that you're going to face, because we all face conflict in this life, what if that conflict was met out of you just coming out of communing in a sacred resistance and revolution with God. I assure you, assure you your response to that conflict will be so much better because of your communing than if you had not taken the time to spend with God. I believe this axiom comes out of this. The volume of what you effectively do for God is linked to the volume of time you intimately spend with God. As one writer put it, without solitude, it's almost impossible to live a spiritual life. 
Guess what you have in lonely, desolate places? Silence and solitude. So if that's something that God's wanting us to practice, and I believe that it is, then we have to find those places. We have to go to those places. I don't know where it is for you. I don't know where where you might sit or where you might take a moment, but you've got to find that place. It's a resistance against what the enemy wants you to do. There's a really cool story in 1 Kings 19. I won't go into all of it, but God's trying to speak to the prophet Elijah after his suicidal depression and running scared from Jezebel. And in verse 11, God tells Elijah to to go and stand in the mountain. He basically said, listen, go and get in a place of silence and solitude. Go stop, stop, center yourself, and be alone in silence and solitude in this mountain and wait for the presence of God to appear is what he's told. But God did not appear in the same ways that he appeared in the past. And see, that's what a lot of times we're looking for. God, I want you to show up this way. I don't want you to show up this way because you did it before. And God's saying, why don't you try something that you've never done, and that's go get silent before me. And in the solitude, let me do something maybe you've never experienced before. And it's in that moment that Elijah goes, and God doesn't appear like he did in the past. The scripture said God was not in the wind as he was with Job. And Elijah would have known all of this. He wasn't in the earthquake as he was at Mount Sinai with Moses. And he wasn't in the fire as he was in the burning bush with Moses. But God finally revealed himself to Elijah in the sound of, and this is what the literal translation of 1 Kings 19 says in verse 12. He revealed himself in the sound of sheer silence. How do you hear sheer silence? I think, we, I think we understand. It's like after all the noise, people say, what do you listen to when you get in the car most of the time? A lot of times, nothing. I just want silence. And it's the sound of sheer silence. And what we see with Jesus, what we see with Elijah, what we probably know from our own experience is that silence after the chaos and conflicts of our lives is usually filled with the peace and the presence of God. God probably won't speak to you in silence every time you steal away. But you'll never know if he will unless you do. You never know when he he will unless you take the time to, to meet him there in that sheer silence. That's when I ever been to a place maybe deep in the woods or somewhere where all of a sudden you were with someone. You say, wait, just just stop and listen. What do you hear? And that's the place that God was speaking to Elijah. And I think that's the place that he wants to speak to us in a world that is constantly full of noise. Number four, the last main one is scripture. See, if the object of our time is to be with God, remember him and to know him more thoroughly, communing with him, then it is incomplete without reading or meditating on the scripture that reveals God to us. as some people call Lectio Divino, the the divine reading, if you will, his divine word to us, whether it's the Psalms, whether it's the Old Testament, whether it's the New Testament, the reading, whatever it is, just do something. And don't forget, this is not another thing just to do, to fill your already busy schedule and to check off your already busy to-do list. This is by grace that reminds us when we go to God by grace, it reminds us there's nothing we can do. It doesn't matter how many times I go steal away, God's not gonna love me any more than he already does. It doesn't matter how many times I don't do it, he's not gonna love you any less. 
but it's by grace that I create this holy habit that I habitually withdraw, steal away to pray in lonely, desolate places and be with God, to stop, to center myself, to be in silence and solitude and meditate on the Word of God. And then lastly, I'll close. We have to practice a Sabbath, I believe. Again, not in a legalistic manner, but just in a rhythm of life. As I look at Scripture and as I see what God instituted in the beginning, in the perfectness of creation, there was a moment of rest. Not because he was tired, but a moment of enjoyment. And that's how the moment is with us. It's, yes, we're tired because we're human and we're not God, but it's not about just getting rest. It's about enjoying God for a 24-hour period. And why do we do most of that on Sunday? Because this is a part of our Sabbath, really, to enjoy God corporately because this journey isn't just alone, but then also to do some things throughout the day that causes us to just enjoy God and enjoy other people. Remember the Sabbath and keep it holy is actually one of the Ten Commandments, number four to be exact. Right after not lying and murdering or committing adultery, then it's remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. The Sabbath is a gift from our loving Heavenly Father that we receive and enjoy. And if you think about God's deliverance in the Old Testament, and he was delivering the people, his people, what was he delivering them from? He was delivering from the antithesis of ceasing from work. He was delivering them from working seven days a week nonstop. He was delivering them from slavery. That's what this is, to work nonstop without ceasing seven days a week all year long is called slavery. And when God called the children of Israel out of Egypt and established the Sabbath, it was to remind them that they were no longer slaves, but they were sons and daughters made in the sacred image of their father. They were human beings, not human doings, made in God's image to work and then to rest not just to work. And it's the same for you and I today. In Christ, we've been called out of the world of nonstop work, called out of the darkness of trying to prove ourselves by what we do and what we earn, prove our value by how we work and how much we do and what we wear and all of those things that God loves each and every one of you for who you are, not for what you do or what you accomplish. Therefore, the Sabbath is a time not to do anything but just to be you with God. Sabbath is a holy resistance against the insistence of life being incessant. Instead, take a 24-hour period just to be who you are in God so that he can form you into who you're supposed to be in Christ. To not see the value of doing nothing before God is to miss out on a vital part of your Christianity. And I'll say that again. To not see doing nothing before God except just sitting in his presence To not see how important this is, is to miss out on a vital part of being a Christian. It's a sacred revolution. It's a time of stopping. And all the things that I mentioned about a daily office, they apply to the Sabbath, except it's just a 24-hour period. We stop, we rest, we delight in God, and we contemplate 
him and his word. Here's what I would encourage you to do because here's our tendency. As human beings, we're great with taking things God tells us to do and then get really legalistic with it and ruin it all. I mean, I think there's probably been more legalistic stuff about the Sabbath that have done more to mess it up than actually make it what God intended. So based on your different temperaments and unique design that God made you, our Sabbaths are all not going to look alike except probably for the corporate side of worshiping God together. But yours could be a nap, it could be a canoe ride, it could be reading a good book, it could be rocking in a chair. I, I don't know, maybe it could be just laying down in the grass and staring at the sky. I, I don't know what it looks like for you. But don't let something as severe as an illness or severe clinical depression like I went through force you to rest. Choose to rest. Allow God to use the Sabbath because the scripture says in Mark that the Sabbath is to serve us. We're not supposed to serve it. Here's what he says. Then he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. It was meant to serve you, not for you to serve it. I think that if we would set our lives up in a rhythm that God intended, we would find that we would be more effective at working for six days than we are at seven. That's the sacred revolution. God did not design us to be slaves. He designed us to be sons and daughters that looked like their father, and their father stopped and rested. And then... The incarnation through Jesus, we see stopping, we see resting, we see praying, we see delighting. We see being alone with and contemplating the Father. Because God loves us and he designed us to be with him. Living a life that is nonstop is spatially disorienting and will lead to your destruction. A death spiral of lies and false hope, if you will. But fixing our eyes on the fixed point of Jesus Christ, as Hebrews 12, 2 says, will allow us to stop and rest and trust God will take care of us in every way as he continues to perfect us in every way in our faith. So maybe this week, you can do this, and I can do this better than I did this week. There were, there were points and there was times this week where it's like, if I'd have just taken a moment to stop instead of just barreling through, it's like, well, I'll stop in a minute. You know what happens when I say I'll stop in a minute? I don't, I don't stop. It's like at that moment where God says stop, I don't go tell him, well, I'll do it in a minute. Any more than when I tell my kids to go do something, they look at me and go, I'll do that when I want to. You say what? When the Heavenly Father says, stop, you don't say, well, I'll do that when I want to. Say, okay, yes, Dad. I got gotcha. you. And then let me let just, I'll close this way. It's like, look, just think in this moment. Sometimes it's like, well, I, I, what do I, don't bring your prayer request right here. It's like, what, what if something comes into my mind? Well, it's going to. You're human. Just let it go. And then find some word. We sang some this morning. Just focus on defender. He's my defender. You're my defender. You're a defender. When nobody else does, God, you're my defender.
peace. You are peace. Or here's my favorite. Here's the one word, Jesus. 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 I'm just sitting here a little bit doing this because I'm, I'm pushing you. It's hard. We want something loud. We want something big. We want something like Elijah. We want the thunder. We want the earthquake. We want the fire. Sheer silence. Yeah, God, I, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not feeling this. But today, I want to encourage you to try something different this week. A sacred revolution of our church, if you will. We can help each other, hold each other accountable. Evening, morning, at noon, will I pray and cry aloud? And he shall hear your voice, is what Psalm says. You have been listening to the Infocus Churchers podcast. We hope God that you were right where you're at today. Be sure to like, subscribe, and leave a radio, radio, wherever, wherever you're listening from. And visit Infocus.org for more on all this going on in the life of everyone.